1: $25 each.
0: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to buy now. That's livenation.com slash concertweek to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noble.
1: They called me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Now, uh, folks, in the interest of full disclosure, we, uh, all all three of us, uh, we we three conspiracy realists right now, have a uh, soundtrack in our heads from a television show. And and Matt, you were doing a lovely rendition of this right before we,
0: we went to air. And I hereby refuse to do it on air okay. because it's doodly not. Okay, that's pretty close. Noel.
2: Boop boop <laughs> boop. Sorry, I'm done. It's pretty close, right? Yeah, Yeah, It's good. Well, the the show you're talking about, In Search Of, the first time I ever heard it was in a Tenacious D song about Sasquatch, and they say, In Search Of Sasquatch, that was a kick-ass In Search Of with (laughs) Leonard Nimoy kicking out the jams. I didn't Mm. know at the time that that was a show. I just thought it was just like, this is a really awesome in search of, like searching for, you know, <laughs> stream
1: of consciousness,
2: yeah, yeah. And then, what's Leonard Nimoy got to do with anything? Like, you tenacious, you guys are weird,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in search of is a, a television program that ran, it's it's kind of a, a similar genre to things that came later that, that you might recognize. Like, what was the one? Oh, uh, the guy who plays Walter on Fringe, um. <sniffs> he did he did a series where he's investigating stuff it's it's got like this unsolved mystery oh, yeah. meets history channel the format has been uh, tried and
2: true you know that now there's what's it called with uh with william shatner yep. <laughs> following Ooh. in leonard's footsteps that was called uh, the unexplained with an x that's right, an right.
1: explained and, and then riker did one uh who is a real person has a real name that is not space affiliated anyway uh we're We, like you, love mysteries, folks, Uh, and one of the most surprising things for any enthusiast of mysteries is how many remain unsolved, and they come up cyclically sometimes, right? There are some big mysteries that seem to hit the national consciousness at regular intervals, right? There will always be a think piece about JFK. Right, or 9-11 or the Titanic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, Area 51 and so on. Today's episode is about a mystery that remains unsolved. In in this case, it's unsolved. You may it's you may have heard of it, quite possibly, uh, but it's one that was sadly mischaracterized pretty often in its time. And now, as we record today, it's become the subject of numerous documentaries. It's inspired works of art. There's an off Broadway play that was made about this. There's rock songs, you know, Leonard Nimoy put it on in search of. So that's kind of a gold standard. Uh, It's 2023 (laughs) as we're recording and the world is still asking what happened to Michael Rockefeller? Yeah, one of those Rockefellers. The Rockefeller Rockefellers. Uh-huh. <laughs> here yeah. are the facts. Yeah, not those off-brand Rockefellers. Uh, uh, not yeah. we have Rockefellers at home, Rockefellers. The ones the center is named after. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
0: And there are no records here. Re-Re is not a part of this episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 Worth it. Uh and there there's also, you know, you have this is one of those things where if you are are living in the United States or if you spent any time in that country, you have encountered the work of the Rockefellers in, in some degree and likely across generations, despite um, how it may be portrayed on paper. The U S does very much have an aristocracy and the Rockefellers, I would argue are members of that aristocracy, which doesn't necessarily make them bad, but it's like, you need to know now um, Our subject for today, Michael, let's learn a little bit about Michael Clark Rockefeller.
0: Yeah, he was born May 18th, 1938. His father was Nelson Rockefeller. This this man is very interesting. And honestly, got to say, everybody came into this episode a little biased. I would say (laughs) anti Rockefeller a little bit just because, you know. It's easy target for like, uh, there's probably something bad going on there because there's a the lot fat cats, of money, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I learned a lot about his father, Nelson Rockefeller, and I would recommend you, everyone out there, just take a look at Nelson Rockefeller. The uh, He's described as a progressive liberal Republican. Really interesting stuff. Uh, we we maybe back could when learn, that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could all learn a little something about that. Uh, he also served as VP under Gerald Ford as vice president. Uh, and hey, guess who the Secretary of State was during that time, guys?
1: Leonard Nimoy. Henry Kissinger.
0: It was Henry Kissinger. <laughs>
2: okay, that would have been my
1: second guess. Yeah, I would have I would have preferred a, a Nimoy led, uh, State Department, but I wasn't on good enough terms for us to talk that out. You know, Got it. Spock is just so calm and collected and diplomatic. I
2: mean, he seems like he'd be great in government.
1: I don't know whether the State Department of that time would have vibed with Vulcan philosophy. You know, that whole needs of the many kind of stuff. Well, that sounds a lot like communism.
0: Uh, <laughs> right. I feel like data would have been a better choice or that's probably what's going to happen in the next couple of, you know. Yeah, presidencies.
1: And just as we do every time that he comes up, let's give a real quick check. We might have to build a sound cue for this at some point. Let's give a real quick check and confirm drum roll, please. Heinz Alfred Kissinger is still alive. And his next birthday is May 27th. All right.
2: Which is his what birthday?
1: It's going to be a big one, man. Uh, He is going to be 100 years old. Wow. What is that
2: called? A septuagenarian? Uh, A centenarian. Centenarian, excuse me. (laughs) Centenarian. I'm good at math.
1: I I mean, those are fun words to whip out, right? Can you imagine? I the thing about being a centenarian is by the time you get there, do you really brag about it? Or do you just want, you know, like juice and a nap? Mm-hmm. You know? I, I'm I'm 39 and I want juice and a nap right now. <laughs> I mean, who could say no to juice and a nap? Or at least juice.
2: I have juice though.
1: Nice. Uh, and and you've got a Garfield mug that says I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs>
2: yeah. So okay. My kid got it for
1: me. <laughs> nice. Uh, and we're talking about families, right? You can't really talk about Michael Rockefeller without talking about the Rockefellers. And Nelson Rockefeller, as you said, Matt, is a fascinating character. And some would argue fairly anomalous, especially if you look at Um, history through a narrative of social and financial class, right? A socioeconomic lens would tell you that a Nelson Rockefeller doesn't happen super often. Uh, But by the time Michael is born, you know, he's like the baby of the family. This is a genuine American dynasty. His father, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, had already done some big things. He was established. And uh, Nelson came from John D. Rockefeller Jr. J.D. Yep, J.D., big, big deal financier, right? Financier, we say, so it sounds classier.
2: Okay, so just to get the lineage... Correctly, like Game of Thrones style, in terms of the the first or second or third of his name, they all had different first names. But he was the grandson of John D. Rockefeller of the Rockefeller Rockefellers Junior, uh, and the great grandson of the John D. Rockefeller. So that's that would be first of his name. Junior would be second of his name. Uh, and John D. Senior was the founder of Standard Oil, which you may have heard of. That's it's not called that anymore. But is it, what, what did it become? It's definitely some iteration of it still very much around. And this is also an example of kind of being first to market uh, on the ground floor, if you will, for something like oil, <laughs> you
3: know,
1: hey, back when you could just name it standard, mm-hmm. you know, you know, like, the it, one. Mm-hmm. it reminds me of that. We don't have to impress you so much, right? There's oil. That's what you need to know, folks. Uh, it's kind of, it still reminds me of um na- weird naming conventions, like how there was this restaurant in Atlanta called legal seafood,
2: right? Yeah, that's a. I think that's actually a chain. Um, it's so many like questions. Boston or something. But uh, if you've seen the film, there will be blood. Standard mm-hmm. Oil is 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 mentioned a lot. It's sort of the main competition to Daniel Day Lewis's character, Daniel Plainview.
0: Well, yeah, it was around for uh, several years in the eighteen like eighteen seventy. I think is when it started. But then, guess what? The government came through and said. Uh, this is a monopoly, and it got broken mm-hmm. up into a bunch of different companies. I think 40-something companies. Oh, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> it did.
1: Must have been quite a monopoly. The people, the tycoons and titans of industry who owned companies that got broken up for their monopolies said, hey, you know what we should do? We should get into government. And then a few generations later... Their families totally did. So, the, so that's a story for a different time, maybe. But, um, but yeah, like we said, Michael is the youngest kid. He has a twin sister. There are a lot of other kids who come before him. But being a Rockefeller and a smart dude, he still gets a top-notch Silver Spoon-type education. The Buckley School, Phillips Exeter, goes to Harvard, where he graduated cum laude. Uh, But one of the... There's an author we're going to talk about a lot, a guy named Carl Hoffman. And Hoffman writes beautifully about Rockefeller, about this story in particular. And Hoffman seems to argue that Rockefeller has another education another moment that really speaks to him and shapes his destiny. And that's when he goes to his family's museum because, you know, his family has a museum. How cool would that be? (laughs) I want to go to your family's museums.
2: And and, and my first thought was, like, is this a museum of the history of the Rockefellers? Because even at this point, it's kind of a thing. I mean, they're they're, they're an
1: important part
2: of of culture. But no, it was, in fact, uh, Rockefellers were fans of modern art uh, and also um, a bit of a loaded term, primitive art that
0: is not. Guys, isn't this MoMA?
2: It, yeah. Like the museum, now it's of MoMA, Art. but they don't call it the Museum of Primitive Art <laughs> no, no, no. anymore at the, the MOMA.
1: Yeah. Right, right. The, the the Museum of Primitive Art inside the MOMA eventually gets closed out. But at the time it's opening, our buddy Michael, he's eighteen years old. He's uh, he's hanging with the swells. It's a black tie private reception event before the Museum of Primitive Art opens. And his father gives this speech. Nelson Rockefeller gives this speech about how important it is to understand art. Now, this speech, just to be clear, doesn't age super well, as you can tell by the word primitive thrown around kind of loosey-goosey. But this rocks Michael's world. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Rockefeller's his world. Mm-hmm. Yes. Rocks yes. his old fella. Yeah. It rocks his fellas left and right. Uh, and his, his perspective is skewed in a, in a very important, very profound way for him because he's seeing this entire world, right? He's seen physical, tangible artifacts of this entire world that he's only heard about, he's only read about, and he's thinking there's something outside. Of this cage of privilege, right? Because fame, wealth, the things people think they want, they can often be a cage, you know, and and we get the feeling, at least the way Hoffman tells it, that Michael Rockefeller at this young age is going through something like that.
2: Yeah, and he acts on those feelings. Uh, joins the army, uh, spends some time as a private, um, and in the early 60s, he goes on an expedition of, of self-discovery and also, you know, d- external discovery uh, to study the Donny tribe of New Guinea for Harvard's Peabody Museum. Hmm? Okay, folks from that part of the, the world, I, I said it right, uh, of archaeology and ethnology.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, this is a guy who he's got all the stuff, right? If he needs some stuff, he can get it, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what the stuff is, he can get it if he wants it. Does- he like
1: snaps <laughs> his fingers and someone shows up with a diet coke and a Lego set, you know, oh. if that's what
0: he wants. Oh, jeez, yeah, unlimited Legos, I guess. But 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 here's the thing: he doesn't go, he doesn't travel to this part of the world as that person, right? He doesn't have his huge entourage. He's not there. You know, no one's watching over him hand and foot in that way. He's actually, I don't know, Ben, I don't want to put anything on you, but it reminds me of the way you'll travel. Like just immerse yourself into a place and kind of become one. Does that make sense? I like
1: to think that especially, oh, man, we're so excited to get back on the road as a group. But I, I think especially when we're traveling as a crew, as a unit, we do the same thing. You know, we we often <laughs> we were just talking about this. Uh, we were in Texas a while back and the three of us were just on a night walk. And there was a moment where we got we got clocked. Right. Somebody made us. We Mm -hmm. got recognized. (laughs) We got made. Uh, That was fun. Yeah, no, I think we
2: all are fans of, like, full immersion travel. I mean, it really is the only way to fly. Um, It's just uh, kind of having not really a schedule, but, like, you know, just really feeling like you just kind of discover things as they present themselves to you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And we've run into some really cool and some very strange situations as a result what I love about your point Matt is that yeah this guy could have traveled with an entourage you know and and said uh, bring me the people you know I want diet cokes and lego sets and artifacts and I will bring them to my father, but he didn't.
0: Well, yeah, and I, and I need two bodyguards at all times while I'm traveling mm-hmm. in this other country, right? Ooh, I mean, yeah. which would be yeah, yeah. A- almost standard if you're uh, in that level, right, of having money. Uh, but he standard, did not do like, that.
2: like the oil. Yeah, mm. it's true. Um, tiny little aside, it reminds me, it's, it's a little bit of a sad uh, analogy, but I just saw this thing where at one point Michael Jackson um, Paid or like his people, like basically rented out a grocery store for a day, uh, and then like members of his entourage posted as regular shoppers so that Michael Jackson could feel what it felt like to grocery shop.
1: Yeah, apparently that's a true story. Too. No, his video of
2: it—he's <laughs> he, oh, like he's, he's he's gliding around on on the cart like Superman. <laughs> it's like because that's what you do when you grocery shop. <laughs>
1: I mean, if you're not, if you're taking a cart through a parking lot and you don't ride it a little bit, you are dead really living? (laughs) Yeah, are you just surviving or are you living, dude? Uh, And I've gotten some looks before. Actually, I recently raced a total stranger on a cart in a parking lot. It was a very amicable race. Did you say, we? I didn't. I didn't. that's okay. I should have. Next time. No, we just both did the bro nod. When we got it was almost not a race. I guess we were just riding together in a Publix. But did uh, you do the Mario Kart like,
0: thing? Beep, beep, <laughs> beep, Did
2: beep. you pelt him with red shells? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get that boost on the beep beep. You gotta hit that hit that accelerate right then. Then you get a little boost. <laughs> Pro tip,
1: it, y'all. <laughs> that's great. I think uh I think we did uh we had that moment where you know, we're looking at each other and we're realizing, oh, this is the highlight of both our Saturday nights and we're both probably too old to be doing this. No such you, thing. You can translate a lot through a bro nod, you know? Anyway, if you're hearing this, I, w- I wish you luck, my friend. May the carts be ever in your favor. And I love you. No, All right. sorry. Well, that was my answer, Eliza. I'm doing fanfic for you guys now at this
0: point. <laughs> <What>?
1: <laughs> and, and Noel love you. So, uh, so, uh Yeah. Okay. This is the thing. He doesn't do any of that stuff we're describing. He is the sound guy for this documentary. And no, no shade
2: on sound guys but it is sort of considered a uh, bit of a grunt job uh, you know you have to keep your levels right and, and get good sound but you're basically holding up a boom mic the whole time and toting around like at this point it would have been like a nagra uh, tape you know recorder like a portable reel to reel mini reel to reel so those things are heavy so he, he kind of relegated himself when he could have insisted on being the director you know he had the clout to make that happen you know you want some financing I'm the director or at the very least been pushy but he wasn't I really it speaks volumes to the guy's whole attitude I think it's cool and it's hard it's a hard job that's right especially
0: traipsing around the
2: wilderness you know
0: well and he also it's he didn't just have audio equipment which you're as you're saying is correct there it's very heavy stuff he's also got a big camera, a big heavy camera back in the day and all the equipment you need to make that camera run and all, you know, all the film you have to carry and all that stuff, dude, yeah, like a still camera. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: But still, <laughs> but still, yeah, it's still, yeah, still a lot. And the lenses are big and, and heavy and bulky. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, he's moving in a group. This is a, this is a proper expedition as they would call it in that time. Uh, but I think we all have immense respect for him. the, the four of us on the show today, including including Paul, um, we have been in those situations, even with uh, much more sophisticated, newer equipment, where we're going around and we're just hoping whatever we had to improvise two minutes ago works. You know, racing batteries, all that crap.
2: Even nowadays, with um, you know cameras and stuff, you still have to. It's, it's a process to get usable content, you know, whether you're recording audio with another phone, you know, and then you sync it up later. And just being aware in that way and observing through that lens, it really is, you know, a mental uh, uh, strain as well, you know.
0: So just like imagine this is all going on, right? Michael's out there in the wilderness. They're shooting a documentary that I believe you can. There not there footage of this that you can actually find right now, Ben?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a, you can see and hear his expeditions work in a documentary called Dead Birds. Mm, Sounds like a bummer. Yeah, uh, full disclosure, I haven't watched the entirety of this, uh, but you can can easily find clips. Uh, I don't want to say anything other than go through the official channels. Okay. Noted. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if during, during this time, he is finding other things. He's always like in letters to his family. We know that he is having one of the most exciting periods of his life. And he's wondering what's next, what's over the horizon, because this is a place where a lot of uh, what he thinks of as civilization or Western civilization has not traveled, so he briefly leaves this expedition to study a different group that we should probably talk about a little bit: the Asmat tribe or Asmat tribe, A S M A T. They're on the southwestern coast of Dutch colonial Guinea uh, and or New Guinea, and he's he. he He feels like he is connected. He's back in that moment at the museum where he heard his dad's awesome speech. Because, you know, if you're that level of politician, you're probably good at speeches. And, And so he's recalling this. And we actually, we have his correspondence or part of it from this time. Yeah, he says, uh, I am having a thoroughly exhausting
2: but most exciting time here. The Asmat is like a huge puzzle with the variations in ceremony and art style forming the pieces. Uh, My trips are enabling me to comprehend, if only in a superficial, rudimentary manner, the nature of this puzzle. And that was from a letter uh, from Michael uh, on November 13th, 1961. Um, She's talking about pieces and art style. That was sort of a hallmark of this, uh, this group correct
1: yeah the azmat people in particular he found their art fascinating they would have these incredibly sophisticated and do have these incredibly sophisticated wood carvings that were made to honor ancestors and you can you can see pictures of this very easily actually some of it is in the moma today i believe uh, and this just rocks his world. And he wants to be the person he wants to be Promethean. He wants to bring this back to New York because you got to remember this time, this was this was like a, a
2: discovery, not essentially. I mean, the, this style of art, this kind of work wasn't something that folks
1: in Western art circles would have been aware of at all. This is like something new. Yeah. Not many people would have been aware of it in in kind of the the upper echelons of the art circles at the time. And so their lifestyle also seems very, I don't want to say alien or foreign, but it's very different to what he's experienced up to this point. And this also enthralls him. And so he goes this one time, and then he says, I want to travel back a second time. And when I travel back, I'm going to barter, and I'm going to collect enough material to make this world-class exhibit When I come back, you know, to the uh, to the blue blood region uh, of my homeland.
2: Do you think he was being um, equitable with these barters? Like, I mean, you know, because you think about art and artifacts like this often being like stolen or at the very least kind of swindled, you know, uh, out of folks that maybe, you know, were not uh, up, up on these kinds of tactics. But Michael strikes me as. A little bit better uh, than that. Um, I'm just wondering what you
1: think. I don't know. You know, we've never, we haven't met the guy. It's possible that we might. It's not probable, but it's possible. (laughs) We've, we've never met the guy. um, And it is, I don't know. It becomes a matter of conjecture because even if you're going into a place like that, doing something like that with the best of intentions, you might be romanticizing People, right, right, exoticizing them, you know, when the when the reality is they're just people living their lives as best they can.
0: I wonder if we can just quickly talk about the the, the people because it, within that, in search of episode, Leonard Nimoy, he he pronounces it as Osmot, and I wrote down I wrote down the name way incorrectly before I looked it up, like how to actually spell it because it's spelled A S M A T, which roughly translates to tree people. If if yes. you look up the the ritualization of the simple task of cutting down a tree and then using that tree for you know the tribe it is beautiful and fascinating and awesome and i think that's exactly why michael became so interested it reminds me of the some restaurants and the the philosophy behind making food uh, that's totally. really popular right now. Where you use Slow food. well, you use every part of the animal, right? It's mm. you translate that to using every part of the tree in this case. Uh, uh, but I know it's just it re- really interested me personally. And, and like you know, maybe a, a modern equivalent
2: might be something like chainsaw sculptures. But again, they didn't have chainsaws. They didn't have any kind of power tools. This was all done in the most you know uh, bespoke, handcrafted way possible. No no shade on chainsaw sculptors.
0: Yeah but but imagine using every piece of the bark every 100%. piece that gets cut off at, it becomes a part of the village itself in everyday life it's bark really cool. can be
2: used in medicines as well and things i mean i'm sure they were you know the roots and certain aspects like that could be used to make tea or whatever i mean there's a, there's a bunch of things uh, you can use a tree for just like an animal
1: yeah and so did he find this beautiful yes undoubtedly to the earlier question did he Was he doing his best to be equitable in his bartering? To not take advantage of um, all people. Right. Probably he was. He was probably not trying to take advantage. He was probably trying to say, here are things that are of value to you. And let's trade. I'm not going to take this from you. Uh, And I also want to tell your story. I want to share your voice with the world, you know. So he wasn't setting out thinking, oh, I'm going to get over on a bunch of rubes or anything like that.
2: Not to romanticize, you know, uh,
1: him, but I think that's pretty cool, (laughs) you know. I mean, comparatively.
2: That's, yeah,
1: for sure. He's Like at this time, this is a Dutch colonial possession and colonialism has a bad name for a reason. So he also, of course, being a big deal, being one of the VIPs of the world at the time, whether or not he likes that, uh, he is assigned a government anthropologist named Rene Wasing. And Wasing is on these expeditions with him. Uh, Wasing is sort of like a fixer, sort of a minder, sort of a uh, a sidekick, the guy who who knows the lay of the land.
2: Livingston to his, the other guy.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, Livingston to his other guy. And so Wasing and Rockefeller and these two local teenage guides, they set off, and in this next trip, operating out of kind of their home base, this next trip, they spend three weeks visiting 13 different villages in the region. They're collecting everything that they can barter for. And they're also trying, maybe just as, or more importantly, they're trying to make connections, which will be important to some theories later. And they get back to their home base, you know, offload what they got, get some more supplies, some more goods to barter for and, and provisions and so on. They set off again And on November 17th, 1961, things go wrong. They're going to head down to southern Asmat or Asmat or however you want to say it, and they're very excited about this because again, in his mind, in michael rockefeller's mind, this is unknown country, and you can see in his letters he talks about how frontiers in general are disappearing, and he wants to see the wild so the Osmat is the name of the region as well as the name of the tribe that's a great question Osmat is a i should say southern uh Osmat territory so mm, got it. osmat uh ethnic group that is in what would now be modern Indonesia, modern-day Indonesia, South Papua. It's on, like, if you look at the island, it's on the, the southwestern coast, and it's bordering a place called the Arafura Sea, which is also important because it's, you know, it it's one of those places where you can think you're on a river, and if you don't know what you're doing, you can find yourself in a... uh around and find out situation and Very that's how simple. they would have been traveling right like by yeah by sea by way of that. yeah by sea and this place is so unknown to the west that rockefeller and actually the entirety of the dutch colonial government they know one white guy who is like aware like cool, knows his way around the place, has earned the trust of the people who live there. His name, Cornelius Van Kessel. And so Rockefeller and his crew say, okay, we've reached out, we've made some contacts. We're going to meet up with Van Kessel when we get to this remote area. And he's going to help us uh, kind of, he's going to liaise, right? Uh, And he will help us learn more about this culture, learn more about their practices and come away with stuff for my art show. (laughs)
0: and right around this time is when something goes horribly wrong and we'll continue this story right after a word from our sponsor And we've returned, okay, so we're we're on our second leg of the journey here with our protagonist Michael, with Renee Wassing, who is by the way from the Dutch New Guinea Department of Native Affairs. Doesn't that just sound lovely coming off the tongue, he said sarcastically, uh, but that's what it was called, and they're also with their two guides, their two younger guides, and they are traveling by boat. Headed back out. So let's get back to them in the boat.
1: Oh, yeah. This is where we go to Carl Hoffman. Uh, we're pulling directly from some of his writing. He says, as they began to cross the mouth of the Betts River, conflicting tides and winds whipped up waves and cross currents. Water that had been gentle one minute was heaving the next. A wave drowned their outboard, and the catamaran began to drift. Then the waves capsized it. Oh, uh, we should also mention this is a homemade catamaran. It is. This is not like really fancy. This is just a boat that floats. Yes. Like jerry cans. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's from Far Cry. It's that kind of thing.
0: (laughs) Far Cry 2? No, maybe. It would probably be all of them. But (laughs) but, uh, the outboard is the motor. That's what they're talking Mm -hmm. about. And, of course, capsize just means it flipped over.
1: Mm -hmm. And so these guides... Teenage, I mean, they're kids. They're familiar with the area. They know things are going wrong. They're like, we're going to go get help. They jump in the river. It's a big river. Sometimes if you haven't grown up around big rivers, you might think, well, how hard could it be to swim across a river? It's very difficult because this is, again, right on the coast of a sea. So they successfully make it to shore. But the shore is so far away that, uh, that Wasing and Rockefeller don't know they made it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these kids heroically trudge through miles and miles of very not cool terrain. They make it back to the home base where they left, and it's the evening. It's late in the evening, and they say, we need to send help. Those other two dudes are still on the river somewhere. And again, would this happen for every person who went missing— Probably not, but the Dutch colonial power structure there knows what a Rockefeller is, so they they send ships, they send helicopters, they send planes for this search the entire time this search is happening, those two guys are clinging to the the remnants of their of their boat, and they realize they're getting closer and closer and closer to the open ocean, which is Exactly what you don't want to happen.
0: And it's my understanding that twenty-four hours passed, like from the capsizing to what the thing we're about to talk to next. At the very
1: least, it was a long night. Uh, They were not. It's arduous, right? Clinging on a on clinging to flotsam in water might sound easy, you know. uh, Whomever that lady was in the Titanic. Might have made it look easy to lay on a door, but it's exhausting. <laughs> did you see that uh, James Cameron recently did. did a experiment
2: <laughs> that proved that there was room for Jack on that door? <laughs> yes, <laughs> he acknowledged it. I, am, I guess kudos to him for that. A jerry can, by the way, that's like a gas can,
1: like a large gas can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could kind of. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so, he they're they're floating. They're exhausted. And they've got to do something because it's just going to get worse if they get out to the ocean because the ocean will eat things. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, Michael, being a, a man of action,
2: decided to do something about it. He he stripped down to his underoos uh, and he attached two of the empty gas can, jerry can things to his belt to like as a personal, like improvised flotation device. Um, And he tried desperately to get to the shore, which would have been around between somewhere between three and up to 10 miles away. Uh, Presumably there's current. So he's, you know, and he's weighed down by these cans. So that's a lot. That's an arduous swim right there.
0: Yeah, and, you know, according to the stories, uh, Rene told him not to do it, like, don't do this, man. You don't have it in you, but Michael appeared to be determined uh, to, to just go and try.
1: Yeah, and he said, look, from my estimation, the shore has to be somewhere between three to ten miles away. You're right. It's a heck of a swim, but I've got these flotation devices Right, So I won't have to be working the entirety of the
0: time. And it's not like there are alligators or snakes. Or
1: sharks. (laughs) Yeah. We, We don't know whether he was correct, and we probably never will. And the reason we don't know this is because this man was never seen again. Still hasn't been seen by anybody. It still hasn't been officially confirmed, right? The Rockefeller family has stayed mum on this. Uh, We will see some speculation, but right now, no, uh, no physical evidence nor physical remains of Michael Rockefeller have been found. Uh, The teenage guides were okay. Uh, They made it. And I believe Renee Wassing was all right as well.
0: Yeah, the the big search and rescue mission was successful. And they did locate the remains of that boat and they found Renee Wassing on there. And alive. Yep. And the only reason we know these details about what Michael did right before he disappeared is because Renee was able to recount that stuff.
2: It sounds like Michael should have taken Renee's advice and stuck with him while clinging to that
1: debris. Mm hmm. Yeah, if you're lost, the best thing to do is stay where you are unless you have to go. And Michael felt like he had to go, and Renee felt like he, you know, also, as every enthusiast of Dungeons & Dragons knows, you don't split up the party. (laughs) Things go wrong. Uh, So this, this triggers this huge search a, a cavalcade of searches really throughout decades and in the aftermath of his di- disappearance no physical evidence has been found no living michael rockefeller has been found uh, no glasses because he was wearing spectacles have been found no uh, no confirmation of bones or remains and that's why so many people have continued attempting to solve this mystery And we welcome you to this. If you have the answer, please write to us and help us with this question. What happened to Michael
0: Rockefeller? And with that, we'll take a break, hear a word from our sponsors, and return.
1: here's where it gets crazy some people might know if one of the theories is true some people might know but right now no one knows for certain right outside of a very remote part of modern day indonesia no one knows and that those people would only know if part of these theories are true If there is someone in that area who knows what happened, they're not they're not going to say much about it.
0: Well, yeah, because we talked about the resources that the Rockefellers have, right? Imagine you are a parent. Doesn't matter what kind of wealth you have. Just imagine you're a parent and imagine your child goes on a trip and that child goes missing while on that trip. I'm assuming you would use every resource you have to try and locate your child. Uh in this case, the Rockefellers have all the resources. So when they start a full scale search, not like the, you know, the Dutch search that end up finding Renee, but this, this is like, just imagine on a, a whole other scale of searching for their son and man, they, they throw everything they've got at it. It's weird
2: though because they you know they charter a Boeing seven hundred and seven and they you know fill it with reporters and they you know um, end up around one hundred and fifty miles southeast of the Osma region. Um, but they did did they not send some kind of serious search party like into the region where he disappeared? I'm I'm, I'm confused about that with those resources that we're talking about. You'd think they'd find some kind of crazy wilderness fixer type person to take a crew out there and not just have these like kind of sad newsless press conferences.
0: Well, it was it. There were there were teams out there searching. Okay, I mean, that's that's what was going on. The problem was uh, having enough people who could who could actually like translate. Right. And Mm -hmm. and have discussions about, okay, well, did you see anything? What did you know? What did you see? And all of that. There weren't enough people to actually do that.
1: Right. And aerial coverage is helpful, but it only does so much Mm -hmm. when you have when you have a dense forest area. Uh, Yeah, there were a lot of problems. And on November 24th, the Dutch minister of the interior is speaking to The New York Times and says, quote, there is no longer any hope of finding Michael Rockefeller alive.
0: And that's only five (sighs) days after he goes missing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, this is also a a pretty tense period geopolitically for these folks. This is also not their first rodeo, losing someone. I couldn't
2: imagine that the Rockefeller family would have been okay with a statement like
1: that. Well, uh, they're a little bit of a black box about some of this. And, you know, it's, again, to the point about being a concerned parent, you sometimes want the privacy. Right. So we don't we don't know how they may have personally felt about several of the turns in the investigation, but we do know nine days after we can confirm Michael Rockefeller swam away attempting to reach the shore. His father and his sister, his twin sister, flew home. They flew back to New York. And then if you fast forward two more weeks, the Dutch government calls off the search. And eventually, Michael Rockefeller is declared legally dead, which we'll get to. Uh, But other searches follow, like we're saying. Uh, Right now, the official conclusion is Rockefeller either drowned, attempting to reach the shore, or he was attacked by a predator. We weren't just doing a bit there. That's hungry water at this time and in that part of the world. A shark could have—shark attacks are very rare— honestly um but it could have happened a saltwater crocodile could he could have run into that uh and that that kind of attack is that's a higher likelihood honestly sure yeah and the swim was more like somewhere between 12 to 14 miles so yeah Yeah. i mean that'll just wear you out
2: unless that's your thing you're like some sort of Olympic level endurance swimmer.
1: I mean, that's that's more than half the length of the English Channel at the narrowest point at the streets of Dover. Yeah.
0: And again, theoretically, he had those flotation devices in the oil cans, right, or the gas cans. Maybe he could have taken breaks in between, you know, a lot of exertion. But again, just holding on to those is exertion. But if there's a a current and you took a break and weren't actively paddling, wouldn't you kind
1: of lose ground? Head on back, yeah. Exposure, exhaustion?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, my goodness. Uh, We should note that there is footage you can see of uh, Michael's father, Nelson, being brought oil cans or uh, petroleum cans that are thought to be the ones, at least one I've seen, um, that -hmm. was thought to be one that Michael was carrying.
1: Right, but again, these are generic jerry cans. Yeah. You know, they're not bespoke or monogrammed or anything like that, (laughs) which would be weird. That'd be a weird flex in a way. But but so, yeah, you can also see footage of people retracing the passage of this catamaran and going to these waters themselves. Karl Hoffman does this and describes it, again, beautifully in his work. So some Dutch officials at the time are being optimistic. Again, as we say, it's not their first rodeo. They have lost people. They know the waters well, too. And at least one guy says, you know, if Michael Rockefeller did reach the shore, he would probably be safe because here we consider the native populations pretty friendly. But how much of that is him just trying to reassure someone, trying to not be a jerk? to someone who's lost a loved one, uh, and how much of it is speaking from fact.
0: I don't know. Well, and there's some timing stuff there that Carl Hoffman points out that we're going to get into later, just mm-hmm. about why a public statement from a Dutch official would probably be uh, positive, like overall, on purpose, when speaking about you know the tribes in New, New Guinea.
1: Yeah. And then also, speaking of timing, we have to remember there's a social lens in which this occurs. Some groups in the area were still practicing headhunting. We're still practicing cannibalism, simply the reality. And the colonial government there, and I mean the West in general, still had these crazy offensive ideas about people they considered primitive or savage. Quote, I mean, honestly, less than is what they were thinking. They have very condescending attitudes. And it's no surprise that the public sphere began to ignore well-established facts about how people can drown or die of exhaustion on the water. And instead, they started to glom onto these stories that Rockefeller had been killed or had been eaten or gone full heart of darkness. I mean, there's some pretty
2: offensive Looney Tunes cartoons that depict that kind of stuff. You know, the idea of like savages you know i mean it really was in the
1: zeitgeist in such a way that it was in popular culture you know and a complicating factor about this is that yes these practices are real but are how how sensationalized are they Mm. right to to pull headlines how and also you know this is a very diverse part of the world so how broad of a brush are these right would that be the Question, like I, 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 you know what, I'll do it. Uh, this is a, a problematic and dumb comparison, but if you ever go to different countries and you're from the United States, you will meet people who are surprised that you don't fit certain stereotypes. Mm-hmm. That's just like a, a human thing, right? You know, they say, "Oh, you, how many guns do you own?" <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even to today,
2: there are countries that like eat. Things that we consider taboo, you know, over over here in the U.S. So, I mean, these kinds of cultural differences, while maybe not as extreme
0: as cannibalism, um, they certainly still exist. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just pointing out some of the stuff that Leonard Nimoy already pointed out in In Search of uh, when when we made that episode that some of the rituals that Michael was so interested in right the the mangrove tree carving the whole ritual of that like as the tree is making its way to uh, the village center uh, the rituals that take place after that all have to do with basically preparing for a battle an attack uh to to i think what they call it, make to revenge an, another tribe with in which they're having war so like it's a it's based on violence, the the thing that Michael was so interested in that the tribes created. And that's just it's what a it veneration
1: was. of ancestors
0: too. It's it's all right? it's all of that. It's everything it's
1: all of that. It's like revenge for the ancestors or past injustices. There's not there there aren't really accidents in this belief system, is the issue. Yes. Like if a disease occurs, that disease is an attack of some sort or retribution for something that you or your community did incorrectly.
0: Yes, so it becomes very complicated. To, so the generalization just is is uh, so problematic here. But it is real violent uh, stuff or potentially violent stuff that you're dealing with.
1: Whoop! Okay, hang on. We we did it. This doesn't always happen on this show, but we've we've gone deeper than we thought into the rabbit hole. Uh, There's still so much to explore. Uh, Gentlemen, I think we're looking at a two-parter here. This is real. We definitely didn't record this later. Um, No,
2: it's true. We did come to a place where we realized that there was a lot to cover uh, on this topic, and I think y'all will agree on conspiracy realism land.
0: Oh, yes. Make sure you stick around for episode two, because we're going to dive deep Deep into the conspiracy. Sorry, I was doing my my mama told me thing. Uh, we're going into the heart of <laughs> darkness. <laughs> Dude, there's just so much to explore here, and we really do break apart a lot of this stuff in great detail. So stick around for episode two. Don't go away. And uh, we'll be back in just a few days. Mm-hmm.
2: In the meantime, you can reach out to us on social media where we are
0: Conspiracy
2: Stuff on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram and TikTok. And if you don't want to do any of that, why not just give us a phone call? You know what the number is. You already know,
1: but we're going to tell you anyway.
0: It's one eight three three S stdwytk
1: And if that doesn't quite bag your badgers, feel free to send us a good old-fashioned email where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com.
2: your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime.
0: Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.